0: Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. For shall listen to you in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed, God, having raised up his servant, Send him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness.
1: I realize an announcement I forgot to include in our announcements. Men's and women's discipleship groups start back up this week. So those are Wednesdays at 7 Uh, Men's discipleship meets at my house, so if you don't know where that is or haven't been before, come talk to me. Uh, Women's discipleship for this week will meet at Mickey Bainter's house, so talk to her about where that is, and again, it's at 7 p.m. Wednesday. Uh, let's, Let's begin again with a quick word of prayer. Father, may you quiet our hearts and prepare us to be able to hear the still, small voice, which is your spirit speaking. For you are God who speaks. You spoke in the past, and you continue to speak. You worked in the past, and you continue to work. So we offer this time to you. Help us to focus, to put aside distractions, to be available for whatever it is your spirit wants to speak to us and do in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen. Uh, one of Marco's best friends in high school uh, did not grow up a Christian. She grew up in a nominal Episcopal home, which is, a, is about as nominal Christian as, as you can get when you're nominal Episcopal. So faith was not a formative part of her upbringing, it was not particularly important for her family but she became a Christian in high school and that was in large part through her friendship with Mariko, Mariko invited her to her church, she heard the gospel, and she made a genuine profession, her life was changed. And I think through that, her dad, again, who is very much kind of a, you know, and Christmas Christian, began to be curious. So he started going to churches and trying different churches and he was very curious about what Christianity was all about. But I remember Marco t- telling me that her dad, after a while, gave up. Uh, and stopped going to churches, because he was frustrated. Because while he went to these churches with genuine questions of what is Christianity about, based on the services, based on the sermons, he was never given a clear idea of what anyone actually believes. He couldn't get a clear idea of what this whole Christianity thing is about. It's a fairly haunting story, especially for a preacher, a pastor. They had a man with genuine spiritual interest enough to take the initiative to walk into a church where he doesn't know anyone, where he's outside of his comfort zone, and yet clearly these churches were not showing him what it means to be a Christian, what, whether it was a f- focus on kind of social activism, how to change the world, or an emphasis on seven ways to improve your marriage. These churches, multiple churches that he went to, didn't have a whole lot to say about Jesus, and sin, and the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and forgiveness. That's not how it was in the beginning of the church. In contrast, the apostles and the church that grew up around them were crystal clear on the one they loved, the one they followed, on who Jesus was, and what he had called them to do, what he called them to be. If you're an astute observer and you were here last week or for the last couple weeks, you may notice that Acts 2 and Acts 3, like Acts 3 is basically a carbon copy of Acts 2. They're the same story. They begin with the miracle, which draws a crowd, and then Peter preaches that this miracle's because Jesus, the one they crucified, has risen from the grave and they need to repent. They're literally the same story. And the reason that Luke is giving this repetition is that he's showing us these early Christians, they were crystal clear about what was essential to them. And it was this gospel. The gospel that, based on what we've done, our actions, our deeds, we stand guilty and condemned before God. But God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who took our guilt, who took our sin upon himself, and he died on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. And what that means is that this Jesus, he's still alive, and he comes to each one of us. He says, repent, and I will receive you. What are you going to do about that? This Jesus is still alive and he talks to each one of us. We're not guaranteed that tomorrow will come, tomorrow we may see God. How are we gonna respond right now? That's the gospel. That's what the early church was all about. That's what they preached ad nauseum and Luke is giving us basically the same sermon. Thank you, Luke. It makes it harder for me to preach because it's like, what am I gonna say that Jack didn't say last week? But he's getting it. This is what we're about. This is why we're here. This is the good news that's announced to the world. And so in this morning, again, we see a miraculous event and it's followed by a sermon in which Peter presents what's most precious to the church and it's the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. Our outline this morning is first point is a divinely anointed moment. Second point is a call for repentance. And third point, this has always been the message. So follow along as I read verses one to 10 again for us. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Uh, according to, to what we think in church tradition to some extent, Luke was a medical doctor. And we see some of this in the story. He's, it's like his doctor brain can't turn off. He's gotta include some of these medical details for us. So here's a man who is, has a severe physical disability. He's not able to walk. It's not that he needs a cane or a crutch. I mean, he has to be carried. His legs do not work at all. And not only that, this is a congenital condition. It's been the case from birth. This is the reality he's known his whole life. It's not because he had an accident later in life or he got sick. He has never been able to walk. And then in Acts 4, Luke also tells us, by the way, this man was over the age of 40, which in our day and age, like you know, it's barely middle age, but at that time, I mean, that was approaching old age this man had never known what it was to walk. And every day for all of his life, he's carried by his friends or his family to the temple where he begs for his subsistence. That's his life. But one day along comes Peter and John. And they tell him, and they speak to him. Of course, he's expecting alms as some sort of charity or financial gift. And if you remember from last week, the Christian community wasn't necessarily a socialist community, but they were radically generous, and they were selling everything they have to provide for the needs, and, and so Peter comes to him, he's expecting Peter to give him money, and Peter's like, well, I don't actually have any money. And it's true, <laughs> he doesn't have any money. He certainly doesn't have silver or gold, but instead, he heals them. And what's very important for our story is who he does this miracle in the name of. So verse six, Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What Peter's saying is what I'm going to give to you, this work that's going to be done, is done in the name of Jesus Christ, it's done under, by Jesus' authority, by Jesus' power. Peter's not claiming any part of this. He's saying this is because this Jesus is actually alive. And so he can heal you. And of course the man's healed But even in the healing, again, Luke, the medical doctor, is giving us these medical details. He says that not only was he all of a sudden able to walk where he couldn't walk, but his his ankles and his legs are strengthened, so he begins to leap and jump and run. And that's part of the miracle there, right there. When I was nine, I broke my leg pretty badly. I was in a full-leg cast for five weeks. Um, And when I got my cast off, uh, my bone was, I guess, technically healed. That's what the doctor said. But my leg had atrophied so much for those five weeks of not using it that I was on crutches for a month. I remember, like, if you've ever had a broken bone, like, they use, like, a saw to cut it off, which is kind of terrifying, but somehow it doesn't cut your skin. And I remember when they cut off my cast, like, my leg looked like my arm. That's how emaciated it was from five weeks of not using it. I was on crutches for another four weeks going to physical therapy to regain strength just to be able to bear weight so I could walk. It was months. Okay, I'm a nine-year-old. Nine-year-olds recover quickly. It was months before I could run. And even six months later, I was at a summer camp and I was part of a, a foot race and I've always been very fast and I came in dead last in the race. I still hadn't regained my strength. Part of what is so shocking and astounding that this is a man whose legs were not an actor for five weeks but for 40 years They would have been completely atrophied, completely emaciated. And here's this man, not just hobbling along, but he's leaping and jumping. I mean, what would you do if you saw that? Someone you knew who... You'd be astounded, too. You'd have all kinds of questions. How is that possible? This doesn't happen in my life. that's... Exactly what happens here. And this is why I'm calling this a divinely anointed moment. Because in this moment, eyes are opened, even if just for a moment. This is where we get to verses 11 to 16. This is the divinely anointed moment. While they clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded, they ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. And Peter saw it. Again, he's seeing, oh, this is a divinely appointed moment. And he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, he glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now there's actually two divinely anointed moments in this story. This is the second one, where the people gather. (laughs) And Peter has an opportunity to share the gospel But the first one came when Peter actually healed the man. uh, We don't know why. Okay, In Jerusalem, there would have been many people who needed healing. Many people with congenital disabilities who were unable to walk or use parts of their body, who were sick, before modern medicine. Peter would have passed people every day who needed healing. Why did he heal this guy? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But the background text there is Acts 1.8. Jesus promised his followers, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so the Holy Spirit is guiding Peter. Can you imagine the internal dialogue? Like, when the Holy Spirit empowers people, He doesn't possess them, they don't lose their ability to function in their own agency. So, can you imagine the internal dialogue of Peter? He's walking up to the temple and he feels the Spirit say, Peter, heal that man. Oh, gosh. Am I hearing this right? Like this is gonna be so awkward if I walk up to him and I grab him by the hand and nothing happens. I uh, and I'm already late to prayer. Maybe uh. if Peter had quenched his spirit in this moment, in this divinely anointed moment, this second moment never would have come. How did Peter know that this was the one to be healed? It's only because he was awake, deeply awake to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the presence of the spirit who is working so that he saw the opportunity. It's interesting, in in, in the book of Acts, the Christian life of discipleship is presented as one where the spirit actually Prompts and guides and leads people to say specific things, and do specific things. Right? Paul wants to go into Mass, or uh, he wants to go somewhere, and he, he gets a vision of the person of Macedonia come share the gospel to us. The Spirit actually guides and directs people. But hey, we're two thousand years later. Has anything changed? No. We still have the Spirit of God. He still directs and guides us. The question is, are we awake? Are we listening? We see two divinely anointed moments that Peter steps into by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. The question is, what kind of divinely anointed moments are you gonna have this week? The God by his sovereignty will bring into your life and we will be awake for them. But in this divinely anointed moment, in verse 11, the people are listening. I mean, these people in Jerusalem, they're just like you and me. Lives are busy. They've got their to-do list. They've got their fears and their concerns, and they've got their depressions and their hardships. Their life is full of stuff. But this miracle has shocked them so that here, everything's ground to a standstill, and at least for this moment, they know God is present, and they're listening Maybe you found yourself in a similar situation recently where everything just clears and you know God is speaking to you. Maybe that's you this morning. What is it that the Spirit wants to say to us? And what's so striking about Peter's gospel presentation is that after this amazing miracle, which wouldn't you want to talk about that? This man's life has changed. Wouldn't you want to talk about that? all Peter wants to talk about is Jesus. He pivots away from himself, right? So when they come to him and they're like, you did this? And he's like, I can't do this. you kidding? No human can do this kind of a work. He even pivots away from the man who is healed because he's not the point anymore. The point is that the one who healed him is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, which means this Jesus is alive and he's present and he's calling you to come to him if you'll Hear him. This Jesus is alive. But to be frank, at first, this is bad news for the crowd. Because what it means is that this Jewish rabbi that they had rejected, when they rejected and denied him and opposed him, they were actually opposing the Son of God, God himself, God Almighty. And, uh, And Peter lays out four contrasts. He says, look, the one the servant that God glorified <laughs> says you delivered him over you betrayed him the one that God glorified you denied him before pontius pilate you denied him when you knew he was innocent everyone knew that in fact you asked for a murderer to be pardoned in his place that's how much you hated this jesus you let the guilty dangerous criminal run free if it means that jesus can be put to death You killed the author of life. Peter does not pull punches. These are like, he's very direct with this bad news. And and, 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 and in its immediate context, right, he's speaking to a, a specific group of people who were present when Jesus was crucified, who called out, who cried for him to be crucified. But theologically speaking, he's referring about every human that's ever lived. Now you may say, "Well, how is that possible? I was not alive 2,000 years ago. You were not alive 2,000 years ago. You did not literally, with your vocal cords, call out for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But we have to understand that when that crowd called out for Jesus' crucifixion, it was not just the Jewish people. That's where people can fall into anti-Semitism, like the Jews killed Jesus. No, no, no. They were representatives of the human race. We share in solidarity because we are people just like them. And when God came to humanity, this was humanity's response. Crucify him. Further, again, you and I, again, we weren't there, so we weren't literally shouting. But our own sin is what necessitated the death of Jesus. This is where that great modern hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, This is what it's talking about when it imagines us at Calvary and it says, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held them there until it was accomplished. Jesus did not die just for that Jewish crowd. He died for the sins of the world. It was us crying out for his blood. The truth is is that not only have we the human race, not not only have we wandered from God, when God came after us through his son, we killed him. And it wasn't an act of passion, of irrational anger. It, it fully reflected what is broken and disordered within us. This is the bad news, and Peter is unsparing in how he presents it. But that is not all. And yet... This very Jesus, whom we crucified, whom we rejected and denied, he healed this man. What had that man done differently? I mean, uh, he certainly wasn't, Peter didn't go up to him and say, well, you look like a very righteous about man, you're healed. And in fact, that man was in Jerusalem during all these events. It says he'd been going to the temple every day for years. He was in the city. Total speculation, maybe he asked his family and friends to carry him, to the crowd, and maybe he was part of that crowd, crying out, crucify this man. We don't know. But yet he is healed in the name of the crucified and risen Messiah Jesus. This is, this is, the, this is the and yet, yeah, there's bad news, but oh, and yet, the good news comes. And it's verse 16, and his name, Jesus' name, his name, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Like Peter's, he's saying, he's like stumbling over his words because yeah, he's just delivered the verdict, the bad news, but he's like, but, 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 but in his name, there's hope for healing and forgiveness. Faith in this one, faith that comes through this one. How could this man paralyzed from birth, how could he be healed? By his name, it's by the work, and the power, and the person of who Jesus is, by his name. And of course, by implication, what that means is how can betrayers and liars be pardoned? By his name. How can murderers receive life and forgiveness? By his name. How can we who are so blind receive sight by his name? It's faith in his name. Faith that comes to us again and again only through Jesus himself. Who are you trusting in this morning? Maybe you come with a burdened conscience. You know what you've done. You know what hangs over you. The fact that this man was healed is proof that Jesus Christ is really alive, which means he's conquered death, he's conquered sin, which means his forgiveness for you, for anything, is actual, real, and effective. But you've got to go to him. The hope that we end with here is no matter where we find ourselves, Jesus is alive. That means there's hope. He's alive, and he healed this man. That's the first point, a divinely appointed moment. Second point, a call for repentance. Here we get to verses 17 to 21. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter begins by affirming, like, I, you probably didn't fully understand that you were crucifying the eternal second person of the Trinity, that you were killing God. Probably didn't realize who Jesus was. And in fact, that's what Jesus says on the cross in Luke 23 34 Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But Peter says, But you're but you should have known. (laughs) And you're still guilty. Your ignorance is culpable. Uh, I've been reading um, essays on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a a Lutheran pastor in Germany during World War II. He was part of the Confessing Church who fought the Nazis. And he died in a concentration camp. So I have a lot of World War II analogies going through my head right now. Um, But one of the great shames of of the German Christian church was at beginning in the early 30s when there began to be laws against the Jews and various restrictions on their civil liberties and various persecutions they just they looked the other way and they kept looking the other way as the as the persecution increased in intensity all the way until the time when the Jews were shipped off in trains and when the war ended and all the horrors of the of the concentration camps came out many of these christians and these germans said i i just i didn't know i had no idea but the point is is that they should have known. They intentionally blinded themselves. Sure, they probably did not fully understand the horrors of Auschwitz, but they knew enough to know. And that's what Peter is saying to them. Yeah, you probably didn't fully understand that this was a divine son of God, but he had done enough in his earthly ministry. He had taught you with conviction and authority. He had healed. You ought to have known. And so you need to repent. And this is where we get to this call for repentance. verse 19, Repent therefore and turn back. The Hebrew word for repent actually literally means to turn or return. It's, it's a very spatial metaphor. It, you know, in, in the Hebrew Bible, pictures life as walking and we can walk in various ways and, and so to repent is literally to realize we're walking the wrong way, stop, turn around and walk backwards and Peter, is, as a devout Jew, is thinking in repentance in these terms and it's a very helpful metaphor to understand what repentance really means. Repentance is not simply feeling bad that we've done things. But it's actually turning from our sin and turning back to God. It's reorienting our lives, reorienting our minds and our hearts and our actions. Uh, think about it like this. When I was in college, this was before the days of smartphones, and, um, and so not everyone had a GPS in their car, and so if you wanted to get somewhere, you printed off directions. And the thing about paper directions is they don't talk to you. They don't tell you, you will exit in two miles. So you have to pay attention you know, and look for your exit sign. And I'm driving back to college with a good friend and we're talking and just not paying attention. And all of a sudden I realized, I think we missed our exit. And so we get out the maps and I realized that we had missed the exit by two hours. And it was, uh, yeah. Are you surprised? <laughs> Are you Like, it's me, okay? <laughs> not the most observant person. But um, it was already a 12-hour drive. So like, we just, drawn, we just drove two hours in the wrong direction frustrating as all get out. But what do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we get off the highway, turn around, and go back. Too often for Christians and non-Christians alike, what repentance looks like is we're driving on the highway and we realize we're going the wrong way. Oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm so discouraged. I'm doing this again. I can't believe it. But we just keep driving. How does that make any sense? It's the person who's entrapped in pornography Find themselves looking at this again, they know it's wrong, and they feel so bad, and they vow they'll never do it again, but they're not making life changes. They're not changing how they engage with media, they're not getting rid of their smartphones, they're not putting in place filters, they're not getting accountability. Like you you gotta actually turn around. To repent is to change course. And here's the thing, Paul, or sorry, Peter he he tells them, yeah, you, you know, when you crucified Jesus, you were killing the author of life. You're going the wrong way in life. You've got to repent and turn around, and that can be agonizing and excruciating when we realize I missed the exit by two hours. But the promise of repentance is worth it, okay? And that's what Peter gives next: repent, turn around. Why? In verse nineteen. Sorry, yeah, verse nineteen. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. He gives two promises for repentance: is if you repent. First, God's gonna blot out your sin. It's forgiveness. It doesn't say he's gonna cross out our sins. You know, it's like, why? Well, I know it doesn't count anymore, but it's still there and you can see it. It's like The, the like feeling of my guilt still, no, 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 it's blotted out. It's using an image that doesn't fully translate to us, because you know, they didn't have paper, they used papyri, and this is not me, this is the commentaries I've been reading, but apparently papyri ink would not seep into it when you'd write on it. It would just dry on the surface. And so you could reuse papyri by just wiping it off, and there'd be no, uh, no remnant left. It's a little bit like chalkboards. When you clean off a chalkboard with a, with a wet rag, and it just completely cleans it off. It's a blank slate. No remnant left of what was written. The promise of repentance is if we repent and turn back to Jesus... He'll forgive us completely, not in part, not, 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 not just for a little, it'll be wiped clean. The Bible uses any number of metaphors to describe how complete the forgiveness of God is. This is one, another one that's used, Isaiah 43. It says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, again, that blotting, and I, and I remember your sin no more. It's an amazing statement. How's that even possible? In the mystery of God's providence, sovereignty, majesty, when he forgives us, he does not remember anymore. There is some sense that when we repent and God forgives us, if we come back and try to repent of the same sin, God says, I don't know what you're talking about. That's the promise. That's why Christians throughout the centuries have talked about the freedom of forgiveness. Because here's the thing, we all labor under guilt. We, we don't always recognize that's what it is, but we labor under it, and, and we have this thought that if I just run hard enough, or work long enough, or do enough, I can pay off this moral debt. And we run ourselves ragged. It doesn't work. We think if I numb myself with entertainment, sex, drugs, rock and roll, It doesn't work either. But Jesus stands ready to blot out your sin if you'll repent and give yourself completely to him. That's why the old African American spiritual goes, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. That's the first promise of repentance, is this complete and total forgiveness. But it doesn't just stop with forgiveness. It doesn't just that he wipes away our sin, but the second promise is that Jesus gives us, gives us himself and the refreshing that only comes from the presence of Jesus. This is verse 20. Again, repent that your sins may be blotted out, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing can refer to like a relief from a debt or relief from obligation. It's also used at times in the Old Testament for Sabbath rest. Think of it like this, Paul, one of the ways he describes this life, he describes it, it's like, it's like um, uh, uh, it, 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 this life is one that is groaning in the pains of childbirth. If you have given birth or if you've seen someone give birth, there's, you know, <laughs> there's just groaning that comes with it. And um, yes, parts of this life are beautiful and wonderful, absolutely, but, but there are also parts that really feel like groaning. We groan in the frustrations of our work, the frustrations of relationship, the frustrations of studies. We groan in our loneliness. We groan in our anxieties. That's why Augustine, the great church theologian, said we're we're restless, our hearts are restless, we're just running. I find rest here, I find rest here. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And this rest only comes from the presence of Jesus. This is what he promises to give us if we repent and turn to him. We're like, no, I want to hold on to my sin, my control, whatever it is. And Jesus offers the rest that we long for. The rest he offers is the rest of the soul being reunited with its maker. We were made for God. Which means any substitute for God will always, always fail. Because we were made for him. Jesus offers us the rest of a groom being united with his bride. If, you remembered, you, if you're married, remember the day you were married. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. That joy and peace of loving someone and knowing even more that you're being loved unconditionally in return is rest. The rest that Jesus offers us is the rest we experience at the end of our work When all that should have been done has been done and all that should have been said has been said and we can just sit and rest and be glad. That's what Jesus offers to us if we will just come to him. Jesus longs to give you this refreshing. So where are you this morning? Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who sought you out to forgive you and bring you home. Do you believe in him? Have you repented and turned to him? Or are you still on your highway off to wherever? Know that you will never find rest outside of his presence. And that Jesus stands ready to receive you. Whenever, however. If you have repented and you believe and trust in Jesus Christ, are you walking in that repentance? That's why this metaphor of walking is so helpful. The image is not that, you know, we're going one way and then we repent, we turn around, and boom, we're done. No, we got to keep walking towards God. We turn away from our sin and we keep walking towards God. And that's how we experience this promise of refreshing and rest in the presence of Jesus. So are you still walking towards God? Or maybe you've stopped and grown content and complacent. If you don't experience the refreshing that Jesus has promised, it's not because Jesus has broken his promise to us. He is always true to his word. But it made the but it may be that we've simply stopped walking towards him. Jesus wants to give you refreshing in your souls, rest for your hearts. So give yourself to him in faith and find rest for your souls and strength for the pilgrimage he has for you. Those are our first two points a divinely anointed moment, a call to repentance, and third, and this is very brief, this has always been the message, verses 22 to 26. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Here's the point. None of this is new. None of this is plan B. None of this is somehow a creative creation of the apostles. It's always been the plan from the beginning. From Genesis 1.1 Christ on the cross was God's plan. And, And he gets to this by mentioning three of the major prophets of the Old Testament. Moses, the one through whom the law came. But Moses wasn't the point. The point was that one would come after Moses who would be like him, but greater. Similarly, Samuel, he was the last judge and one of the first prophets, and he was the first to prophesy about the line of David that from the lineage of David would come a king whose kingdom would never end. And of course, Abraham, the patriarch who God gave a promise to him saying, I'll bless you and make you a nation, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And God blessed Israel by sending them his own son. And Israel would bless the world when they sent out Paul the Apostle, a Jewish missionary who would go to all the Gentiles. So that 2,000 years later, a bunch of non-Palestinian Jews can know and worship this Jesus. This has always been the message. Old Testament times to New Testament times when the church's birthed, they knew one thing it's Jesus he's alive yes you crucified him but he's alive and there's rest in his name and there's forgiveness like you wouldn't imagine in his name if you'll come to him and find your hope in him governments will come and go but Jesus has risen he is the living and abiding word of God American Christianity may come and go, just like it has in Europe. But the gospel will continue to advance around the world in some of the most surprising places. Uh, Movements and fads may come and go, but this gospel remains the source of our life, the fountain of our rest. You and I will come and go. And when we're gone, what will matter most is how we responded to this Jesus who is alive who has come to us and said, follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to receive you afresh as we partake in in this communion time. Help us to receive you by faith in our hearts as if for the first time with all the joy and the wonder that come with the knowledge that our sins have been blotted out, that we have the very presence of the risen Jesus Christ among us and that in him there is real rest. Holy Spirit, may you do that. for That is the work that you do. We ask this in faith, in deep longing, in deep need. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen.